Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be talking to our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, about this week's EU summit in Brussels and why, in spite of their best endeavours to take a break from the subject, EU leaders will be discussing Brexit. But first this week, we're focusing on the escalating tensions between the US and Iran, amid fears that a misstep by either side could trigger a military conflict that neither party wants. For more on this, Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, joins me now from there. Suzanne, we might start with the the latest development in this story, and that's the news that the US is to send an additional 1,000 troops to the Middle East. And that follows a move last month to send 1,500 troops to the region in response to what the US says is a growing threat from Iran. Why is the US ramping up its military presence in the Middle East in this way? Yeah, um, this was announced on Monday evening. The Department of Defence, the Acting Defence Secretary, Patrick Shanahan, announced um, that the US would be sending 1,000 more troops in Iran. And as you mentioned, that's in addition to the 1,500 troops they sent uh, back in May. Now, officials here are stressing that this is a kind of a defensive move rather than an offensive move. Um, We're being told that they are going to be there to kind of monitor things in the area and monitor activity uh, by Iran. Uh, But it's it's a worrying, worrying sign uh, that that tensions are really escalating here. Um, It comes after uh, the United States also moved an aircraft carrier. B-42s have been essentially ramping up its military presence in this region and which is sparking concerns that it could be potentially, uh, you know, moving towards some kind of a military incursion of some kind in this area. And of course, this news today followed a a very concerning development yesterday, Monday, when Iran threatened to breach within 10 days the, the limit to its nuclear fuel stockpiles, which it had agreed to in its deal with Royal Powers in 2015. So we're mm. seeing both sides here raising the stakes. Uh, how is that warning from Tehran received in Washington? Yeah, I think this is very significant, uh, but it's not unexpected. When the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in May 2018, um, it was almost inevitable that this was going to happen because Iran argued, and correctly in this uh, in this sense at the time, that it had not been in breach of the deal. The America did not think it was in breach of the deal. The other powers who had signed the deal did not think that either. Uh, but Donald Trump and the administration were evidently unhappy with the, the nature of the accord that had been signed by President Obama. Um, so it was almost inevitable that at some point they were going to start breaking you know, their terms of the bargain. And this is what seems to have now happened. As you said, uh, the key, the central plank of this deal really was to curb Iran's nuclear activity. Uh, they were under certain um, restrictions in terms of uh, the amount of uranium they could produce and levels, etc. Now they announced on Monday that they are now going to start ramping that up. Um, they have, you know, the current level is 3.67% enrichment. Uh, they're going to bring that up. They're going to increase the amount they're, they're producing. But more significantly, they suggested on, on Monday that they may bring it up or, or start looking at um, potentially enriching it to 20%. Uh, and that's significant because it's still a, a long way away from having enough to, to produce a nuclear bomb. But uh, it, it bring, it, it's quicker, if you like, to get from 20% to 90%, which you need, uh, to produce a, a nuclear bomb, then go from 3.67% to 20%. So this is actually very significant. If they start really ramping that up, um, you know, some reports that they could uh, to get to that point um, of producing a, me- a weapon within a year. So I think this has been a real um, a real turning point now in uh, in this kind of pattern of escalating tensions. Um, as I said, not unexpected, but now the whole uh, question will be how the United States and how the other European signatories, the deal and other other signatories respond to this. 
And Suzanne, are people taking these threats from Iran at face value or, you know, are they really just trying to, if you like, um, increase the stakes and, and, and force the hand of, of their adversaries in the US and also force the hand of, of um, the Europeans? Um, I think the uh, there is a, a hope among some quarters that Iran is essentially uh, hedging its bet, playing, you know, bluffing here, that um, they they believe that Donald Trump himself does not want a confrontation in the Middle East. And, and of course, that's in keeping what Donald Trump said during the campaign. He wanted to bring troops out of the Middle East, not start um, new conflicts in that region. So I think there's a sense that maybe Iran is pushing it because they know that ultimately Donald Trump won't you know, order this military incursion. Now, now, one of the problems, of course, and the central problem here is that Donald Trump himself has been given mixed messages on that. Um, he has really, he's he's managing a, a cabinet, some of whom uh, do want perhaps regime change in Iran. John Bolton, the national security advisor, has spoken about bombing Iran before. So at, at one point in the last few weeks, Donald Trump actually made a joke saying, you know, I have to rein in, in John Bolton, you know, and, and making the point that he is ultimately the person who makes that decision. We'll have to make that decision. And he, he's, he's correct on that. But at other times, he's used very uh, inflammatory language. Um, just back in May, for example, he talked about, you know, this would be the official end of Iran if it threatens the United States. Uh, then, you know, Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, hit back as accusing him of using genocidal taunts. Uh, and again, this is very much uh, reminiscent of the rhetoric that was going to and fro between Pyongyang and Washington uh, during the height of the North Korean nuclear threat uh, earlier in Donald Trump's presidency. And of course, Donald Trump, you know, flip-flopped through that and then landed in a certain place. This may well happen with the Iranian issue. Um, but at the moment, just to get back to, to, to your first question there, uh, I think a lot does depend as well. Uh, Iran is, is kind of calling maybe America's bluff because it's waiting to see how the European partners also react to this. Significantly, a lot of U.S. allies have been reluctant to support uh, the U.S.'s position in the last few days. Germany in particular has questioned um, the, the intelligence, essentially, uh, that Mike Pompeo has said proves that Iran was behind um, the attacks on two tankers uh, last week in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, so, you know, the U.S., and maybe, maybe it's, a, it's, it's an indication of how the U.S.'s standing among its allies has fallen, and that's really that trust is breaking down between European allies and, and the United States. How do, you, how do you believe an administration that itself has dismissed its own intelligence agencies' findings about other issues, like Russia, inter, Russian interference, for example? How do you take that as face value um, in, in this context of Iran? So I think the U.S. will be discussing with its EU partners about what's the next step. The EU has been basically trying to keep this Iran deal on the road since uh, the U.S. has pulled out in May 2018. Um, it, it remains signatory to the deal and it set up a kind of special purpose vehicle to allow businesses to keep doing business with Iran. Uh, but that just doesn't seem to have worked. And I think you've seen that the, the, the European signatories to the deal are beginning to realise we can't really keep this going without the United States on board. And I think if you see that, well, then... We could see a further escalation by Tehran, where they breach even further uh, the terms that were in that original deal back in 2015. And of course, Suzanne, you're a former European correspondent and you were based in Brussels when the nuclear deal with Iran was signed in 2015. This crisis does pose particular challenges now for Europe, doesn't it? Yeah, I think this is one of the big foreign policy achievements of the European Union. Um, it worked closely with the Obama administration on this. The European Union is sometimes criticised for not having a very strong foreign policy, that it's that that's more in the realm of NATO and the big kind of military powers in Europe. 
But this was some somewhere, you know, the, the high representative at the time, Catherine Ashton, was very, very involved with this, and Mogherini then took that over. So I think um, they believe that some of the moderates in Iran are people they can do business with. Um, they, they're trying to keep them on board. They're trying to keep them on board at the UN as well in New York, and that's an, a, a, an important forum in which this Iranian uh, issue is, is constantly playing out. Um, but I, I, as I say, I think they are reaching the end of the road here on that. Now, Mogherini actually is in Washington today, Tuesday, where she's due to meet Mike Pompeo. And we do expect that this Iran issue is, is going to come first and foremost. Another another theory may be that the Iranians, or there had been a hope that the Iranians might sit out the clock on this, maybe until the new uh, the next presidential election here in the U.S. Um, Donald Trump obviously completely changed U.S. policy on Iran. There's nothing to say that a, a democratic president if they were elected in the 2020 elections, could go back to the status quo. And I think uh, at least some of the Democratic candidates have suggested, I think Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, that they would rejoin the nuclear deal. But the fact that Iran has made this statement about increasing um, its activity, its nuclear activity on Monday, you know, has has kind of disappointed, I think, some people that, that they really mean, they, they're really serious about breaking the terms of this deal and that this may push, uh, you know, the US to, to even further... Um, measures in the region, which which really nobody wants. And if Iran, Suzanne, is not bluffing and does go ahead and breach the terms of the deal, is that really the death knell for the deal? Is that the end of Europe's, you know, support for it, if you like? I think so. I mean, the, the, one of the problems is not not only that uh, the US pulled out of the deal, but in recent months, it's been um, returning to some of the clauses in that, if you like. And it essentially, uh, in April, banned all countries that import Iranian oil, um, saying, that, saying that they would be subject to sanctions. The US did that. And I think that was a, the real death knell for Iran. They, they obviously depend on oil um, and their economy is really, really suffering here. And, you know, it's easy. It, it, this, this issue is complex. I mean, I've talked to Democrats here uh, on Capitol Hill, people like Chuck Schumer, they, they did not support Obama's Iran nuclear deal. They, they saw that it was flawed. So it's, it's not that this deal in 2015 was perfect. Um, but, you know, the strategy was, the calculation was, well, it's going to lead to some kind of curtailment of nuclear activity, which it did. Um, now, there were flaws with the deal. For example, um, it would it would have, there was no sunset, the sunset clause issue. So it would have expired after 15 years. Although, of course, proponents of the deal said that would have been rene- renegotiated. And then Republicans and Donald Trump would say it didn't address Iran's uh, support for other, um, you know, benign influencers in that region. Um, they're worried that Iran was using the, the economic successes of the nuclear deal to fund terrorism, essentially. So there were problems with the deal. But now we're back to square one, if you like, and the whole thing seems to be unraveling. And of course, this seems to be in complete contradiction to what Donald Trump is doing in North Korea. He's kind of taken a, a policy of appeasement, one could say, and trying to, um, you know, he's negotiating with Kim Jong-un. He seems to believe what he's telling him. And yet, you know, at the same time, they have walked away from a deal that did manage to curb Iran's nuclear activity. So, you know, as you're saying here, what what happens next? I mean, I think there is that sense that Donald Trump really does not want to get into a conflict in the Middle East in saying that something small could trigger something large here. And that's sometimes when people sleepwalk into war, etc., that that's the way it plays out. So these tensions um, in the Gulf are very, very concerning. And I think the American public here are very concerned. Um, and and there's been very, there's been relatively few voices uh, calling for intervention. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, a, a, a very conservative a Republican member of the Senate, he's been one of the few voices who said, he said this weekend that, you know, the, the attacks last week in the Gulf of Oman warrant a retaliatory 
a strike by America. But but really, he's he's pretty isolated when it comes to that. Most others in Congress um, are are urging restraint and do not want to get America into another conflict in the Middle East. And Suzanne, you anticipated a question I was going to ask about North Korea because w- one of the differences, obviously, between North Korea and Iran is that North North Korea has a far more advanced nuclear program and it, it has dozens of nuclear weapons at its disposal, whereas Iran doesn't yet. So what are we to make of these two kind of contra- directly contrasting approaches by the White House? Yeah, it's, 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 it's ironic that, as I say, Donald Trump is trying to, is advocating Kim Jong-un, um, is taking him at, at his word, um, where most people believe that, you know, America has got nothing from these North Korean uh, negotiations, that the, the gains have been one-sided on the side of North Korea. There's been no measurable deep nuclearization from the North Korean side. And yet Kim Jong-un has been given this international platform to summits with the US leader. Um, now, Donald Trump, just this weekend, he did a wide-ranging interview in ABC News um, that kind of aired in, in different portions over the weekend. And he's asked about uh, his, you know, the status quo with North Korea. Um, and he was asked, you know, does he believe that North Korea is collecting weapons and missiles uh, and that's his evidence of this. He said, I don't believe that. You know, Kim Jong-un promised me he wouldn't. And this kind of language, this kind of naivety a lot of people believe from Donald Trump is extraordinary when you see what's happening on the other side with Iran, a complete breakdown in trust. Now, in saying that, Donald Trump has suggested uh, on Twitter mainly that um, he wants to, he's prepared to sit down and discuss with Iran. Uh, and, you know, again, he slip-flopped on that. Some tweets are saying they're not ready to talk. Some tweets... He says they are, um, but there, you know, there is a suggestion that, as with what happened with uh, North Korea, that that you know this belligerent language by by the Americans will actually end up ending up with with uh, some kind of a cooperation, like not not quite a summit, maybe as we saw with Kim Jong Un, but but something along the lines of uh, of diplomacy. But of course, from the Iranian side, I think the big problem here now is that trust is completely broken down, and this is one of the the real problems for. For the for the international community, the hardliners in Iran never trusted the United States. You know, they were the people who said, "Let's not sign this deal. We don't trust the Americans." And now, lo and behold, the Americans have pulled out of it. So you've got a situation now in Iran where the moderates, who again were trying to keep things going, um, are getting pressure now from the hardliners, who are essentially saying, "We told you so. You should never trust the, the U.S." and ordinary people in Iran who are really hurting in terms of um, the, these these sanctions. And you know, uh, the currency has has fallen. You know, economic growth is stalled, etc. They're 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 under serious economic pressure, so they again are losing trust with the Americans. So I don't know if the willingness is there on the Iranian side anyway to do any kind of a serious uh, negotiation with the U.S. at this point uh, anyway. I, and just, I mean, if there is to be a de-escalation of the crisis, Suzanne, um, where is it going to come from on the American side? Yeah, um, there's. Uh, I think. What may happen now is, is whether there's going to be more kind of um, activity in the Gulf, like the the um, the attacks on the two tankers last week, which followed attacks a few weeks previously, um, you know, were designed, you know, some of the uh, analysis seems to suggest that that was a design not to cause serious damage if it, if it had been a different part of the ship. Uh, for example, the, those vessels may have taken on water, etc. That wasn't the point of this. That was, if the Iranians did it, was, was to kind of send a message. Um, so, you know, if there's anything more like that, I think that's worrying. Um, but it's kind of, you know, Cold War style. Each side is, is inching up their um, their responses. But 
but but not too seriously in each in each instance. Uh, and the the issue is there's a lot of comparisons with you know with the Gulf War etc. But you know taking on Iran is a whole different um, scenario. They're they've a much much they have a huge military and um, they're a much bigger country. And um, you know the Americans are aware of that. Uh, so again, you know, one would hope that those cool heads would prevail, and that you know that that there's ultimately, unless there's something very very serious from the Iranian side, that the U.S. won't pull the trigger in that extent and won't to that extent and won't start this this huge uh, confrontation in that region because you know both sides have have so much to lose from that. And Suzanne, before I let you go, while we're on the subject of Donald Trump, his campaign for re-election um, gets underway today in Florida. Yes, uh, he'll hold his first campaign rally of the 2020 uh, campaign season tonight in Orlando. Uh, He's been tweeting about it enthusiastically this morning and on Monday, saying that 100,000 people have requested to attend. Now, the stadium only holds 20,000 people, so we'll see how that turns out. But there there has been uh, queues of people outside the arena in Orlando. Uh, Mike Pence is expected to attend. Uh, Melania Trump will be there as well. And, um, you know, this what this is what fires up Donald Trump, you know, these kinds of set piece rallies. Uh, and it's significant. It's taking place a week before the first Democratic presidential debate next week, which takes place over two nights in Miami. So, again, it underlines the significance of Florida here as a, as a very, very important state in the 2020 election. But I mean, I've, I've been to these Trump rallies. I presume it's going to be the same kind of rhetoric, the same kind of atmosphere. It will be Trump. Um, lashing out his opponents, touting his achievements. We may see a lot about immigration, the border wall, a return to the themes that he believes kind of helped propel him to the White House in the first place in 2016. But very much the president is gearing up for this today. He's, as I say, tweeting from the White House this morning, will be leaving late afternoon for this rally. But it will give the flavour of what's to come over the next, it's still 17 months away, Chris. So we're going to have a lot more of these rallies between now and November 2020. And obviously uh, the opinion polls will fluctuate and change a lot over the next 17 months. But what are they kind of currently showing for, for Trump? Yeah, it's been it's, it's been very interesting. Uh, he's he's coming into this rally with a, a very much a, a weak set of polling data. Um, a Fox News has his own favourite TV channel. They had a poll at the weekend really showing, you know, very negative figures for Donald Trump. If the election was held today, they they predict that Joe Biden, who's the Democratic frontrunner, would have a you know, a, a 10 point lead over Donald Trump. Um, they were showing that he polled at 49 percent nationwide compared to 39 percent for Donald Trump. And um, also Trump's own re-election campaign uh, issued some polling back in March. And this has leaked out in the last few days, actually prompting the campaign team to fire some of their pollsters. But in this leaked information, it again, very, very negative predictions there for Donald Trump, particularly in key swing states that, after all, he won only by a small margin. Now, the Trump campaign team has come out. Donald Trump himself dismissed that these polls even existed. But White House officials in the last 24 hours or so have come out and said, look, these polls were taken in March. This is before, say, the Mueller report um, concluded and things have changed since then. And, there, and that, that is probably true to an extent. Um, but still, I think it does show uh, the level of concern there there is at the moment about Donald Trump's re-election chan- chances. In saying that, this is a man who defied the polls in 2016. That, you know, So I think that people are 
worried about giving that too much credence because we all know what happened to 2016. The poll said one thing and the election results was very different. So um, nobody is putting too much store in these polls, but I think they are worrying for the Trump campaign at this point. Okay, Suzanne, I think this is a topic we may be discussing again over the next 17 months. (laughs) Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. Thanks again to Suzanne Lynch in Washington. It's to Brussels now, where our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, is on standby to tell us what to expect from this week's EU summit in Brussels. Paddy, I might start with the item that was not supposed to be on the agenda this week, but EU leaders have found they cannot get away from Brexit. Yeah, I think they're not being very clear about why it is that they're putting it on the agenda, because nothing has changed. But I suspect that it's to do with the... uh, the sort of issues that are coming up in the debate in Britain, and particularly the insistence by virtually all the candidates except Rory Stewart that they would be perfectly placed to renegotiate the the uh, withdrawal agreement, and that of course uh, Europe would listen to them, uh, where it hadn't listened to Mary, Mrs May, and it's it's to actually I suspect to repeat that message that the uh, withdrawal agreement is not up for rene- renegotiation, no matter what they might they may, may say. And there was one claim in particular made, Paddy, by one of the candidates in the Tory leadership race, and that's Jeremy Hunt, and his claim that Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron have indicated to him they're willing to renegotiate the the border backstop, which, of course, would involve reopening the the withdrawal agreement. What do they make of that claim in Brussels? Um, Nobody takes it seriously. If if Jeremy Hunt met either or both of them in the corridor and he said, listen, I'm going to want to talk to you about the backstop and the treaty after the, the election, it is possible that they both said, yeah, we'll talk to you about anything. Uh, but they will certainly not have given them any, any assurance that the, uh, uh, that the deal, uh, the backstop is up for renegotiation. In fact, uh, if anything, attitudes are hardening on, on that issue. Funny, I saw a tweet today, Paddy, from the Christopher Mayer, the former UK ambassador to the US, in which he, he said that the EU's insistence on sticking with a withdrawal agreement that has been rejected three times by the British Parliament is, and, and these were his words, a strategic blunder of astonishing proportions. Uh, might he be right? Well, no. I, I think that the reality is that there's, a, there's an inherent logic to the withdrawal agreement on, on, on whatever, on citizens' rights, on, on the, the, the backstop. Uh, on, and it's very difficult to think of a way round uh, dealing with it. They've spent two years negotiating it. Uh, and they're saying, look, this is it. This is the best we can offer you. And we've made significant concessions. Uh, it would be uh, insane to to reopen the, the withdrawal agreement because the whole thing would fall apart. Uh, and the, the net result will not be a new deal. Uh, you can be absolutely sure of that. But, but if it's very clear that the other side can't accept an agreement, and I mean, it's not just uh, the, the candidates in this race who are saying that this uh, withdrawal agreement is unacceptable. As, as Christopher Mayer said, it's the Parliament that's rejected it three times. So is the EU not then just sort of setting up a scenario where no deal is inevitable? Uh, if no deal is inevitable, it's because of the British don't understand the implications of, of leaving the European Union and that they can't leave entirely on their own terms. That's that's the reality. And, and uh, as London has continually tried to say that, that, that Brussels is being unreasonable, or Brussels is blocking the way, they're being unkind, they're taking revenge on us, they're, they're, uh, uh, this is nonsense. And it's part of, of, of a rhetoric that really uh, has, has made them no friends here and, and on the contrary, has hardened attitudes uh, against them, I feel. And there was an interesting uh, letter uh, that the British have published uh, today 
between uh, an exchange of correspondence between Stephen Barclay, the Brexit secretary, and Michel Barnier, uh, where um, Barclay said to uh, Barnier, look, actually, what we, we like the whole of part two of the withdrawal agreement. That's the bit on the uh, citizens' rights, EU citizens' rights in Britain, British citizens' rights in the U in the, the rest of the Union after uh, a Brexit has happened. Why don't we just uh, sit down and agree that and, and just put the rest of it aside? Now, this is remarkably similar to a proposal that, that Boris Johnson was making the other day of dismantling the withdrawal agreement, picking and choosing, cherry picking, if you like, the bits that he liked and agreeing them and, and getting and disposing of the rest. Barnier has said very firmly, no, this is this is not an agreement that is for taking apart. These are related rights and, and duties that are woven all the way through the, the agreement. You can't take one bit and not the other bits. Uh, in, and he specifically mentioned the fact that uh, citizens' rights includes uh, the backstop, which uh, Mr. Barclay wasn't including in his package. So what are we expecting, Paddy, at the summit this week in, in the context of Brexit? I'll come to the other items on the agenda in a moment, but are we expecting the EU leaders to, to formulate some kind of statement or, or agreed position? Uh, we're not expecting a formal statement. This is going to be an informal discussion at the end of the summit between the 27 leaders on, on Brexit. But I think what will happen is that uh, 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 Tusk, the president of the uh, council, will go to, the, to his usual press conference and he will make a few comments about how the treaty, uh, the, the withdrawal agreement, that is, uh, is not uh, up for renegotiation and he will be absolutely firm on that. There is also a possibility that he will he will say uh, that the British should be aware also that it is not a foregone conclusion that if they come to the October summit with nothing worked out, that they will be given another extension. There, there is a strong lobby in the uh, council uh, led by the French, which says, listen, you give them an extension and they take uh, it and they do nothing with it. Uh, they've got to be given a, a ver an absolutely clear and firm deadline. So it's possible that Tusk will will, will say that, although there, there are others who, who are not as, as, as keen on, on that approach. And where would you say, Paddy, the balance of sort of opinion is on that, on that very um, uh, subject now, the, the question of wh which is better, which is worse for the EU, a clean break on October 31st, um, with all of the economic damage that a no deal would bring versus a further delay and all of the uncertainty that that would bring? Well, the delay and uncertainty bring economic damage because businesses can't plan, they can't invest, uh, they can't decide what they're, what they're, what they're going to do. Uh, so it's not a question of, of you know, hard, hard Brexit resulting in damage and, and, a, and an extension allowing you uh, a, a few months of, of uh, leeway. There's damage both ways. And I think the view is coming round to Macron's that they really should... Uh, bite the bullet. Um, the preparations have been made. Uh, the Commission is very insistent that its legislative programme for a no-deal Brexit is in place, and most of the member states have already done uh, done uh, most of the work. Though I have to say that in relation to the Northern Ireland border, uh, there's still considerable ambiguity about what would happen then. But nevertheless, I think that the, the, there is a stronger view, uh, not shared in Dublin. Dublin would like, uh, if necessary, another extension. Uh, because we don't want a, a Brexit to happen at all. But I, I'm not sure that that is sustainable. So what else is on the agenda, Paddy, for the summit on Thursday and Friday? 
Well, there are quite a number of things. I suppose the most controversial is the appointment of the next president of, of the commission and, and a couple of other top uh, EU institutional jobs, the president of the council to take over from Donald Tusk, the president of the European Central Bank to take over from, from Mr Draghi, and the uh, high representative for foreign and security policy to take over from Federica Mogherini. Uh, these are extremely difficult because a balancing exercise has to be undertaken, which would share the jobs between the different political parties uh, in the leadership of the parliament uh, and between the different regions. not possible for one country to take two of the positions, even if they've got a plethora of, of, of impressive candidates, uh, and, and they want a gender balance. Uh, so there's a juggling operation uh, going on, and different groups of people are currently negotiating compromise deals on this. The leaders themselves have set up a working group which consists of two members of each of the, of the three uh, main parties. The um, parliament has set up a similar working group which is also doing seeing if they can come up with a deal. With the EPP, which is the centre-right party, insisting that their man Weber, who uh, got, if you like, the biggest vote in the European Parliament elections, that he should, be, he should get the job. But uh, the socialists and the liberals uh, are not having any of that. And, and so it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what, what happens there. I don't actually think they'll reach a deal on the Commission presidency on, uh, at this, uh, this meeting. Uh, we have a prospect of yet another summit, uh, probably in Ju early July, uh, to, to deal with that issue. It is possible they may try and, and do half the job uh, to do the... the um, uh, commission uh, the council president and perhaps the ECB head in which case uh, it's argued the task then for July would be relatively simpler uh, but it still is, is it's very difficult complicating all of that is that the parliament is is meeting uh, on the 1st of July uh, and it will be very strongly in favor of its person getting uh, the job and they will threaten not to endorse anybody who doesn't who doesn't back uh, Mr. Weber. So the leaders have a, have a difficult job, and, and Tusk in particular, to try and um, draw out a compromise out of this mess. But it is possible, is it, that they may fill a couple of the jobs this week, as early as that? Yes, yes, I think so. I think I think I'm, I think the uh, president of the council, uh, in particular, they, they they may decide to do because um, it's it's not as highly contested. Uh, the leaders have decided in the past that it has to go to a, a, a serving or former prime minister. So that whittles down the field somewhat. So it's not just, there's not a, a clatter of, of commissioners looking for, 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 for the job. Um, my bet is on the Lithuanian, uh, a woman called Dalia Griboskaitis, uh, who is liked, who's tough, who's politically independent, so she wouldn't deprive any of the other groups, any of the groups of a, uh, of a, of a, of a seat. Uh, and uh, who I suspect um, will emerge from the, from the meeting on Wednesday. Another item, Paddy, on the agenda, of course, is um, accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania. And I think the European Commission has, if you like, given... Uh, um, the green light, or you can correct me on the terminology, but for these accession talks to begin. But um, what kind of view is the council likely to take of, of this? Yes, every year the Commission produces a report on the state of preparedness 
of applicant countries for uh, accession talks. And then when the talks have begun, they report again on the the level of, of transposition of, of EU procedures and laws. Uh, they've came out very strongly only a matter of three weeks ago uh, to say that North Macedonia and Albania deserve to begin the accession talks process. Uh, they think that if they don't, uh, that they will lose their what's called their European vocation. And it's certainly the case that, uh, um, for example, the Russians will, will, uh, will, will come in and tell them, look, these guys aren't really serious about taking you on board. Why don't you take a little bit of investment from us and, and politically uh, support us? So there is a concern strategically that if you, if you don't uh, let the uh, uh, North Macedonians and the uh, Albanians uh, begin the process of talks, uh, that they will drift away. Uh, but is it anticipated, Paddy, that the Council won't uh, this week um, agree to start these talks? Uh, that's the word. The French and the Dutch are particularly strongly opposed uh, to be, to opening the, the process. But there are, there are discussions going on as we speak uh, on 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 whether or not they can reach an agreement, uh, so it'll be signed and sealed before the meeting starts. Uh, but uh, my suspicion is that they probably will defer it until the um, until summit in the autumn. And why the reluctance? I mean, you look at North Macedonia in particular; it's jumped through several hoops recently, including changing its name to resolve a dispute with Greece over over you know the the, the claim to Macedonian territory. Um, so why the reluctance? Well, for Macron in particular, the, the French uh, president, uh, there is a strong sense that he, he has said that he's going to hold up any enlargement process until the EU reforms itself. The bringing in more member states or even offering them the prospect of membership uh, before the EU reforms its procedures and streamlines its operations uh, is, is, is a bad idea. So he's using the issue as leverage against those who want, who don't want to reform the European Union. So the, the, that and the Dutch, it's more to do with a reluctance to see uh, other, perhaps uh, non, uh, other member states who are not going to be on the same economic level as uh, the main member states in the, in the European Union and who will uh, be a drain on the, on, on the community's resources. I think that's more than any uh, inherent prejudice against Albanians or Macedonians. Of course, and it has implications, doesn't it, beyond those uh, specific countries? Because if you look at, for example, Serbia and Kosovo, I mean, the, the, the incentive for them to resolve their differences is less than this if the EU seem to be reluctant to begin talks with, with other states in the Balkans. Yes, and, and I mean it's been being said quite uh, openly in the in the Western Balkans that really Europe isn't isn't that serious about uh, bringing uh, these countries these countries in. Uh, it is it is very problematic in in Serbia. It's also problematic in uh, Ukraine to encourage the process of reform to keep up the process of reform, uh, with the Ukrainians being told having been told that the, the road to membership was something that, that, that they would be uh, uh, allowed onto. Uh, but it's very clear now that the Ukrainians are very, very far down the line. Uh, and it does create problems uh, for the politicians in, in Ukraine who are encouraging reform on the basis that, look, we need to do this because this is our path to European Union membership. OK, well, Paddy, we look forward to your reports and analysis of the, the summit later in the week. Thanks for that. 
That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.